Welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Community Church. Cool, we're going to watch a short clip to carry on with our series in Mark. So, guys, go for it. But I'm so glad that we found each other. Just want to say, um, I'm not making any theological statements about The Chosen. I know some of you absolutely love it. Other people have issues with it theologically. I haven't watched enough of it to make a comment, but I like that clip. I think it's a beautiful dramatization of Scripture. It's not Scripture, uh, and clearly there's an imagining going on there of what Jesus might have said that isn't recorded. But I think that it really tries to get some of the heart of the story and that encounter, that beautiful encounter Uh, between the woman with the issue of blood and Jesus, uh, and some cracking acting as well, I think, going on there as well. So let me summarize. We're going through Mark 5, and I'm going to summarize it for you this morning. It's too long for us to read through. So let me tell you the story around the moment that we just watched there on the screen. And the moment is that Jesus has been on the scene Jesus is uh, healing some people, he's doing some fantastic teaching, and he's beginning to become quite popular. Uh, Crowds are gathering around him, they're kind of getting into it, and they're thinking, you know, this this amazing person, Uh, he seems to be able to do some wondrous things, seems to be able to teach, uh, and carries authority, And, and so you've got this popularity of Jesus that is growing and growing. And then this man called Jairus who is referenced a little bit in that clip, comes to Jesus, uh, and he is a synagogue leader. Uh, So if you like, he's a a church leader, he's a pastor, he's a vicar, but he's more than that, because at that time you didn't have the sort of um, division between religion and civic duties. So if you were a synagogue leader, you led religiously, you also led civically, you were important, you had... Um, So if you imagine, sort of a vicar come church leader come local politician come local goodwill person. You've got that kind of important person there. And he comes to Jesus and he says that his daughter is on the brink of death. And would Jesus the healer come and heal his daughter? And it's important to remember there that there were religious people that turned to Jesus as well. Uh, The the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish people tend to get a bit of a bad rap, don't they? The leaders in the Gospels, but many of them actually believed in Jesus. It says in Acts that many of the synagogue leaders turned to Jesus. They were ready for him. They were reading the scriptures, and they saw Jesus, and they believed. And so he comes to Jesus, and he says, will you come, and will you heal my daughter? Jesus says, yep, I'm on the way. He starts heading there. And as he's heading there, we get this clip that we just saw where all of these people are gathering around this Jesus Uh, trying to get in on the ministry, and through the crowds pushes this woman, um, and she pushes through, touches uh, the hem or the edge of his clothing, and she's healed. And this woman has been suffering for many, many years, 12 years in fact, the scriptures tell us. She's been suffering with continuous bleeding linked to a cycle, and this disease has affected her, this illness has affected her physically, it's affected her financially, it's affected her socially, 
and it's affected her religiously as well. She's impacted on all of those levels. Now, clearly it's a physical uh, debilitating problem that she had, but it also affected her, it said, financially. And that was for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that it's probably likely that she wouldn't have been married. We don't know that, but probably likely. Uh, it says that it's, she'd been suffering for 12 years, um, which may have been since puberty, which means that because she wouldn't have been able to conceive children, then she probably was unlikely to get married. Not being able to conceive a child is obviously a clearly a painful thing today for many people, many people, we know people here who struggle. At that time, it was painful, but added to that, it was also seen as a shameful thing. And that actually, Jewish men would, if, if this condition arose during a mar- marriage, they would be within their rights to divorce the woman based on the fact that they couldn't produce an heir for them. So whether she was not married to begin with because of her issues, or whether later on they developed and then she was unable to maybe divorced, uh, unable to bear children, would have made life financially really difficult. And um, life was really hard for women in ancient times. I think it's hard for women today. But it was really, really hard for women in ancient times. Uh, Did you know that a woman couldn't make a financial purchase uh, like on land or a house, without the signature of an approving male. How bad is that? Yeah? So if, for example, you were unmarried uh, and you didn't have a son, a grown-up son that could vouch for you, you'd have to go and find an uncle or a relative that would vouch uh, for your financial transaction. And so financially, this woman was pretty destitute. We're pretty sure about that. On top of that, it says that she'd spent all the money she did have I'm trying to find a cure for this problem. So she's desperate. She's affected physically. She's affected financially. And then also, you would have noticed some of the references to being clean and unclean. And we haven't got time this morning. I would love to do this at some point. It's a great uh, Old Testament deep dive. But um, to talk about unclean, clean, and holy in the Levitical laws, uh, which is Old Testament. And basically... When it says um, that she was unclean, what that means is that in the Levitical laws, a woman in a cycle was considered unclean. Now, please don't hear this as sinful, because we can connect unclean and sinful and think that they're similar things. They're not, okay? They're different things. And again, we ain't got time to go into it, but it's all to do with the, um, the kind of laws around coming to God and being holy before God. And it's all to do with blood and human discharges. There's issues for men. There's issues for women. We won't go there this morning. It's not appropriate. But know that basically, because she was uh, bleeding, then she would have been considered unclean. And on top of that, what that meant is that um, you notice the issues around touch. Anyone she touched or touched her was considered unclean for the rest of that day. They would have to go home, spend the time at home, then wash ceremonially, and then the next day they would be considered clean again. So you can imagine in a busy, ancient world where you're living hand-to-mouth to feed your family, you come into contact with someone like that, and if you want to honour God, you have to go home and miss a day's work, or miss some connections, or miss a business transaction. So what do humans do when other humans inconvenience us? What do we tend to do? We push them out, don't we? We ostracise them, we push them to the edge 
of our society. And this woman would have been, you saw some of that in the clip, she would have been pushed to the edge of society and ostracized because she was an inconvenience. She was difficult for people to get, um, to get through their life spending time with her. And so you have a woman here who is physically affected, suffering physically. She's financially affected, suffering uh, in her means and her way to provide for herself. She's suffering socially, she's ostracized, and also she's suffering religiously because she's considered unclean virtually, you know, lots and lots of her life, she's an unclean person. Jesus, she touches his, his, the edge of his garment and they have this beautiful moment where she's completely healed and Jesus calls her daughter and has some time with her and then Jesus says, I'm going to get on with my current role. She, he goes to the house of Jairus. As he arrives at the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, do you remember him? He arrives there and they say, don't bother, she's already dead, his daughter has died. He says, don't be afraid, only believe. He goes into the house. He takes two of his closest disciples and the two parents of the child, goes into the room, holds her hand, and brings her back to life and says, get up, have something to eat. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? Anything? You want to meet Jesus? Going to meet someone like that? (laughs) Someone who walks in and so beautifully... We talked in some of the, the words that were brought about bringing our needs to Jesus, bringing our hurt to Jesus, bringing our pain to Jesus. Somebody walks in and is able to pinpoint and powerfully solve the needs that we have to meet with us in powerful, powerful ways. So the question I want to ask this morning is what has this clip, what has this passage, what is what Mark has recorded for us, what does it teach us? What does it teach us today as 21st century Christians of people following Jesus? And I've heard it taught, and perhaps it's true, that part of this is about actually you've got to have the faith to push through the crowds, to um, press in, to touch Jesus that you might uh, receive your healing or your need met or whatever. I think there's some truth in that. The challenge I think with that is it puts the focus um, on the woman and on Jairus, the focus becomes on them and their faith. And by extension, the focus becomes on us. And it says, actually, you've got to have enough faith and you've got to press through and you've got to be able to believe enough to get what you want from Jesus. And my experience is, having led in church for a number of years, that often when we put the focus on ourselves and when we ask if we've got enough, enough faith, what we end up doing is feeling bad feeling bad about ourselves, and actually we pull away from Jesus rather than coming to him. And so I'm not convinced that Mark would have wanted us, when we read this passage, to think, how big is my faith? Do I have the faith that these people have? And so what I think it is, is I think it's about Mark's overall aim of what he wants to do through his writing. And we get this right at the start of the book of Mark. In Mark 1 verse 1, it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. So here's the good news about Jesus, the Son of God. And then what Mark does is he quotes some passages from Isaiah and Malachi, the Old Testament passages. Uh, And basically those passages say, prepare the way, God's going to turn up and he's going to do something, which was a constant promise 
that the Israelites were looking for. You know, the world's a mess, everything's broken, things aren't going right. Get ready, God's going to come and sort it out. Sounds like a good promise, doesn't it? And then what Mark does, he says, prepare the way, God's going to come and sort it out. And then he turns and he puts the focus on Jesus. And that was totally unexpected. It was like, what? He puts the focus on Jesus. And so, so much of Mark is actually making theological points. He's trying to say, this Jesus that you're reading about isn't just a good teacher. He isn't just a miracle worker. There was lots of those going around, people that would do amazing things. He isn't even an amazing prophet sent from God. He's all of those things and so much more. He is actually God. And those of us who are Christians, we're like, yeah, boring point. We know that. But try and get in your head just how radical that claim is. Because I think that if we can get that sorted, which I don't think we're perhaps as sorted as we think it is, if we can genuinely believe that this man that lived 2,000 years ago in the flesh, in actual time and space, is, was, is God revealed in human form, I think that radically changes everything. And that's what Mark got. He got that this is, this is a radical moment of Everything changes at this point. So Mark is making this point that this isn't just a prophet. This isn't a miracle worker. This isn't somebody who um, just kind of is on the scene and is going to point to Yahweh. This is a completely change. This is a complete turnaround, transformation of the story of God. And we know that he does this because a few chapters before, um, Mark tells the story of the uh, Jesus when he stills the storm on the boat. Anyone know that one? Do you know that story? And we interpret that as, um, you know, get Jesus in your boat and he'll calm the storm, which I think is true and a good message from that story. But what ancient readers would have thought with that is, hang on, here's someone who can speak to creation and tell it what to do. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Would you like to be able to do that? We'd just been on holiday, and um, it rained. How many days? I think we had two nice days. February in England. It would have been great to speak to the creation, wouldn't it? Come on. But it speaks to the water. Remember, water for the ancient people would have been considered as chaotic, uncontrollable, far out of you know, their ability. And yet this man says, shh, and it's silent. Mark is making a statement about this person. A few, next chapter on, it talks about how Jesus interacts with a man who is uh, possessed by a spirit. And you know, a lot of spiritual stuff in our society is pushed down. We don't recognize it a lot. I think it's suppressed. In these cultures, it was much more um, in your face. It was much more there. And so Jesus speaks to this uh, spirit and commands it, tells it what to do. So you've got a man who can speak to creation. You've got a man who can speak to the spirit world. And then in our story today, here's a man who speaks to disease itself and then even to death and tells it what to do. So Mark is making this claim as he's building his story about Jesus and saying, hey, here's a man who's on the scene doing some amazing thing, but he speaks to creation, he speaks to the spirit world, he speaks to disease, and he speaks to death itself, and all of it obeys him. This is creator God. 
This is Yahweh. This is God himself in the flesh, active on the earth. And so I think that much of our understanding of these passages has to come with those fresh eyes of saying, this is what Mark is saying, and do we believe it? Do we really believe that this is who this Jesus is? There's another level that Mark is working on as well in this passage, because you heard in the clip some of the references to holiness. and We've talked a bit about that, uncleanness, cleanness, holiness. And um, as we said, I won't go into it, but you know, if you touch someone who's in their cycle, then you're considered unclean. But touching a dead body was even worse. And so I think I've got the passage up uh, in the next slide, maybe, from Leviticus. So this is what happens if you touch a dead body, uh, according to the law of God. Remember, this is God's law. So it's not just old rules. This is what God has said. If you touch a body, and then this is what happens after. If he does not clean, cleanse himself, so if you've touched a body, you don't cleanse yourself. On the third day and on the seventh day, you will, um, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Did you notice what Jesus did when he touched the woman with the issue of blood? Did he go home? Did he go and wash? No. What did Jesus do when he touched the dead body and raised her from there? Did he go home? Did he wash? We don't know. But it doesn't record that he did. And this isn't about Jesus breaking the law. This isn't them saying the law isn't relevant, it doesn't matter. What this is about is saying this man is different. Because what happens when you and I and people of the old and um, in the ancient times, they were considered clean, and then things, certain things, would make them unclean. And so they'd have to go through a process, sacrifices and washing and things like that, to become clean. And then, if they wanted to approach God, they had to go to certain things to become holy, to be able to come to God. That's, that's what happens with people. And yet when Jesus does it, something different happens. Because when a clean thing touches an unclean thing, the clean thing becomes unclean. But when Jesus' holiness touches an unclean thing, the unclean thing becomes clean and actually becomes holy. How remarkable is that? That actually his presence, his holiness, transforms the thing that he's been touched rather than, so the, the, uh, the effect only goes one way. Yeah? And so Mark is making a point here. This is different. This man isn't just a great prophet because a great prophet would have to live by the law of God but what he's saying is this person has fulfilled it and actually he's working on a completely different level. And what that makes me think of, um, do you remember Isaiah 6? Some of you remember Isaiah 6. There's a prophet and he sees a vision of God in the temple. So he's, he's, you know, he's praying and he sees God and he sees this like wacky scene. Yeah, it's crazy. There's all these like massive angels and creatures, and they're all bowing down to God. They're saying some of the words that we've sung this morning. Holy, holy, holy is God. And he sees this huge scene. And what's his response? He suddenly realizes, I'm so unclean. I'm so, this is so holy. This is so amazing and glorious and wonderful. And I'm so far from this. I am a man, he says, of unclean lips. This is a prophet. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Like, 
you know, I can't face this. And an angel takes a coal from the fire in heaven. It's a vision that he's having. And he brings the coal and he touches his lips. And then he becomes an instrument for the work of God. Again, what is unclean comes into the presence of the holiness of God and is transformed and becomes clean and ultimately becomes holy and an instrument for God's work. And so what we see there as we see this story is Mark saying, this man is powerful. He carries authority to speak to creation, to speak to disease, to even speak to death itself. He brings so much life that when he interacts with death, death flees and life is brought into that place. But not only that, he is so holy that when the unclean interacts with him, his holiness turns the unclean thing clean and makes it holy. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. So Mark is demonstrating that Jesus is the Son of God. That's his claim. This isn't just a man. This is the Son of God. That God is here in human form. But I don't know if you notice, not only is Mark recording that Jesus is powerful and has authority and is holy, but he also records how kind and thoughtful Jesus is as well, which is where we get some of the emotional response from. We need a God who is powerful. Don't get me wrong. We need a God that can put things right, that can sort things out, that can transform a broken world and a broken person and a broken church. We need a God that has that authority and that power. But we also need a God who is kind and loving and thoughtful. And this is what it says in Mark 30. It says that after Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you? And you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. And that word looked is like, um, is it Paddington that does the steely gaze? Is that the right one? It's a hard stare. That's the word, isn't it? He gives a hard, so it's it's quite serious at the moment. He's like, what is going on here? Something, this isn't sort of like in his um, control in a sense. This is like, what is happening? Something is happening here. That, and he wants to know, who did it? And this woman comes forward. It says, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And what's he say? He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed, be healed of your disease. How beautiful is that? Daughter. Think how many years this woman has spent being pushed out, being rejected, being religiously, you know, people were doing the right thing. And yet here he welcomes her, he touches her, he holds her, he speaks to her and he meets Not just the need that she has, but he meets the person. Daughter. Welcome to the family. You're in. Welcome. It's beautiful. There was an important man with an important job, with an important need, demanding Jesus' time. This situation of Jairus with his daughter. His daughter is on death's door. 
And it demands Jesus' time. Jesus, you need to come and sort this out. And Jesus takes the time to stop. Not just heal. He could have left with, you know, healed, done, let's crack on. But no, he takes the time to stop, to turn, and to not just meet this woman's need, but also to meet her as a person. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. There's a, um, one of my favorite uh, Christians, um, a wonderful, who I don't know, you're all my favorite Christians, but someone I don't know is a missionary uh, called Heidi Baker. I love her stuff. She's uh, Roland and, Highland ba- and Heidi Baker. They uh, ministry um, out in Mozambique and do some amazing things, have a great conception of um, both power, healing, and suffering. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, I would recommend her stuff, her writing. She says, living the Christian life, she says, it's not complicated. Just love the one in front of you. I love it when people have the time and the thought and the kindness to stop and just love the person they're standing in front of, the person they're meeting that moment. It's a lovely idea, isn't it? I think I'm too busy. At times, I think I'm too important. At times, I'm distracted. At times, I'm looking at other things or whatever. And yet, Jesus, is there a more pressing need than a faithful synagogue's leader's daughter on the brink of death? And he says, that can wait. I'm going to meet with this woman. Meet her where she's at. Beautiful. He meets her physical need. He meets her need financially. He meets her need socially. He meets her need religiously. And he meets her as a person and interacts with her as a person. So what's the main focus of this passage? What do we need to get from it? What I want you to get from it is to be drawn to Jesus. Not to ask, do I have the faith of that woman? You know, it's interesting that Jairus says to Jesus, come to my house and heal. Whereas the centurion, when he comes in another passage, he says, you don't need to come to my house. Just heal from where you're at. Jesus doesn't rebuke Jairus. He just takes the faith that he's got. Fantastic. Let's go with it. It's not about, I don't think, the size of our faith. Because Jesus says, if you've got faith as small as a mustard seed, that wasn't a point about the size of our faith. It's where your faith is based. It's what your faith is in that is critical. And so I don't want us to beat ourselves up thinking, well, I'm not like that woman. I'm not like Jairus. I want us to focus, as we've heard this morning, to look at the main thing. Who is this man? Do we believe that he is who he claims to be and who Mark and the other writers and the other disciples are claiming that he is? Because if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and if we believe that he is good and he is kind, where else would we go with our needs? Where else are we going to go with our pain, our suffering, our longing, our heartache, We come to Jesus because he's both powerful and he is good and he is kind. When the servants of Jairus' house come to him and you can imagine the pain in his heart as they sort of say, it's too late, your daughter's dead. He's missed it by that much. 
just not quite got him there in time. Jesus turns to him and he says this, do not fear, only believe. There's a lot about fear in these passages. The disciples were fearful in the storm. The local people were fearful of the man who is possessed by a demon. And here he's fearful of losing his daughter. But Jesus' message is do not fear, only believe. If Jesus is both God and kind, what do we need to be afraid of? If Jesus is going to meet us in our darkest, deepest desperation, what do we have to be afraid of? We need to come to him and bring him our needs, even our own death. Even our own death is not something to be afraid of because Jesus has shown that he conquers death, that he's bigger in death. And John got this in his gospel in John 11. It says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. It's beautiful, isn't it? There's um, in the moment where Jesus goes into the room to raise the daughter uh, from the dead. He takes with him just two of his closest disciples and the two and the parents of the child. You know, this isn't about making a show. This isn't about you know, a great spectacle. This is about meeting real needs. You can imagine how terrified, how distraught those parents are in that moment. It's all been lost. It's gone too far. And Jesus takes them into that room. He holds her hand and wakes her up. And then he says, get her something to eat. Which is partly about Showing that she wasn't just a ghost, you know, she's a real person, she's going to eat. And also about just caring for her needs. Meet her needs. She's just died, she's probably hungry. You know what I mean? Beautiful. So, I wonder if there's some people in this room that have very little faith. Anyone? Yeah? Let us not focus on that faith, on our lack or our great faith, but let us put our focus on who Jesus is. If he is powerful, if he has authority, if he is the Son of God, and if he is kind and thoughtful, where else are we going to take our needs? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Amblecote Community Church. For more information about who we are, what we believe, and how you can get involved, check out our website amblecoatcc.org.uk